Hello, my name is Rachel Tromlin. I'm Assistant Professor of Physical Therapy at Louisiana State University Health Sciences Center here in New Orleans. Today we are doing a podcast for the month of April, which is Stuff You Should Know. This podcast is intended for either beginner audiences or to serve as a review for some more experienced uh, vestibular therapists. What we'll talk about today is the medical workup of, in general, what someone, a physician does for medical workup for vestibular disorders, and then we'll highlight some of the common disorders and talk about the medical treatment for those disorders. With me today, I'm very lucky to have Sarah McDowell, who is a vestibular therapist practicing at Our Lady of the Lakes in Baton Rouge. Sarah, I'll let you introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Sarah McDowell. Like um, Rachel mentioned, I'm a vestibular physical therapist here in Baton Rouge, working um, as part of a neurotology clinic. Um, and I've been doing vestibular therapy for several years now, following some inpatient and outpatient neuro. Okay. So first we're going to talk about when a patient has a acute vestibular disorder, how they get to the doctor and what's sort of their um, path to get care. So typically when patients, you know, have a peripheral vestibular disorder, it's typically going to be a sudden um, onset of symptoms. And a lot of times people are educated and very well that a sudden onset of dizziness could be a sign of a stroke. So a lot of patients do end up going to the ER first. And of course, if they, um, first thing ER physicians would do if they suspect a stroke is to do a CT um, and to do a physical exam to see if the patient is in fact having a stroke. The other common path of care, if symptoms don't present suddenly or perhaps they're not as severe, uh, patients a lot of times will go to internal medicine physician first and then from there perhaps get referred to ENT um, or even to a neuroautologist um, at that point. Um, of course, you know, depending on the physician that they go to, the ER physician, the neurotologist, the ENT, or the internal medicine, the first thing that they're going to start with, you know, besides, of course, rule out an emergent cause by head CT, um, once they do that, they're going to start with a history. And they're going to take a vestibular history very similar to the types of questions we would ask, meaning, you know, what are the onset of symptoms, when did, when did they start, how severe are they, what activities um, bring them on, what's the history of present illness, any other past medical history and medications. Um, this summer, actually, Sarah and I recorded a podcast about taking a vestibular history. Um, so if you want more information about that, please refer to um, that podcast. But just for the sake of getting through, you know, the other things, I'm not going to discuss specifically what would be included in the history. Um, the next thing that they're going to do is a bedside exam. And Sarah is going to tell you about some of the items uh, that a physician might do for the bedside exam. Sure. And this certainly will vary um, from physician to physician physician to physician, as well as between different specialties. So in the ER versus a primary care versus maybe an ENT or a neurotology physician, their bedside exam may look different. <clears throat> but um, the common tests that we get here, you know, they will do very similar to what we do, um, a basic assessment of oculomotor function. Um, they often do a head thrust test, um, just like we would a hall pike exam to see if there is any sort of BPVV going on. Um, oftentimes, I see the physicians do a Fukuda step test or something like that um, to try to give them a better idea. They're really trying to figure out, is this something that's involving the inner ear? And so they're teasing through this beginning portion of the assessment. They're usually the first person to see the patient. Um, they try to get a history as quickly as they possibly can, 
and get through some of these tests. Rachel, is there anything else in the bedside exam that you normally see? Um, no, I think that uh, sometimes it's all. Uh, actually, one more thing I might add. Physicians may do a quick ambulation or balance exam too. Yeah. Might see the patient walk. Um, but it's definitely not going to be as thorough as we would do in a physical therapy exam. But they would will get kind of a gross idea of what the patient's doing. They may also do a Romberg. Um, of course, eyes open and eyes closed as well. Absolutely. Yeah. They they often do a basic, like a very basic balance assessment. Um, what I find here, though, is that most of the times they'll do this quick exam, but then they will often order a battery of additional testing um, just to give them the most detailed and objective information possible. So what I normally see is, as Rachel mentioned earlier, there may be some imaging, um, either an MRI or a CT. If they're suspicious of a neuroma or something like that, they may do an MRI with contrast, an MRI specifically of the um, inter auditory the um, IACs. Uh, in terms of the testing they generally order, um, here we do a lot of different testing. Most ENT's office will at least do a VNG or an ENG, um, either through video or electronystagramy. Um, this test, as you probably recall, I'm sure it's been talked about, is really testing the function of the horizontal canal, which is obviously a branch of the superior vestibular nerve. Um, this test is the one where they will put either warm air or cool air or warm water or cool water into the ear to see the response of the vestibular nerve. Um, that's a test that's pretty standard across all ENT practices as well as neurotology. There's some other tests that um, not everybody does but are certainly helpful. Um, I'm going to mention a few of those here. There's definitely a lot more out there. But the ones that we currently see is um, the ECOG. And that's a test where they're doing a series of clicks or tones in the inner ear. And they are looking primarily, it can be interpreted differently, but for the presence of what's known as high drops or maybe looking for Meniere's disease. Um, again, this can vary between place to place, what the cutoff values are, the norms. Um, but it is something that you'll see for physicians to try to rule out, does a patient have high drops? Um, another one that we see here a lot is the VIMP. Um, and unlike the V and G, it is looking mostly at the saccule, so it's looking at the inferior portion of the vestibular nerve, so it can be very helpful to have specific information to the superior division and specific information to the inferior division. Um, this is the one where they put electrodes on the sternocleidomastoid, put a series of tone bursts in the ear, and measure the output at the muscle, if you've seen that one performed. Um, the final one we'll talk about today is the rotary chair. Um, this one gives a wealth of information, but it's a very expensive piece of equipment, so it's not always readily accessible. Um, if you do have access to the rotary chair, this is a great test because it can look at bilateral vestibular involvement, unilateral vestibular involvement, as well as central involvement. So it can test the VOR function, VOR suppression, opt optokinetic nystagmus. Um, it's the gold standard test if you're suspicious that somebody does have bilateral um, involvement. So those are the tests that we commonly use. Like I mentioned, there are a multitude of other ones depending on the location you work in, the physician's access to the testing, and those sorts of things. Anything else you'd like to add there, Rachel? I uh, just want to mention uh, maybe for some uh, beginners or newer graduates, 
that these tests are performed by audiologists. Yes. And if you ever have any questions on the test, they can be quite complex. And when first looking at the ports, reports, they can be very, very intimidating. Um, so, you know, find your uh, audiologist um, and have them explain any of the results. Typically, they should include a report which has a summary of the finding. Um, I find that most helpful to look at first just to get a general idea. And then if I need clarification, I'll look further at the individual tracing um, or other test items. Certainly. And if you're looking to really try to learn one test, I would probably focus on the VNG or ENG as that's the one that most um, physicians do have access to. And then depending on where you're working, you may see some of these other tests and then you can have, there's continuing education courses on them, or like Rachel mentioned, you can just talk to the audiologist and they can go over those. Um, the other test that the audiologists often do is just your basic hearing test, your audiogram. Uh, this is another test that can be kind of complicated for us therapists to interpret, um, but again, they often will put some interpretation with it. Uh, this can be useful information if you are working at a facility where you don't have access to a lot of testing. Um, it can tell you some basic things, you know, we'll look at later. Um, like, for example, if the patient has a big asymmetry in their hearing, that can be a red flag for a refer out if they haven't seen another provider about that. So having a basic hearing test is always a great idea. Um, and if you're interested in learning more about those, definitely the audiologist can help explain all the different symbols and numbers and things that are on there. And now that the physician has gone, they've taken a history, done imaging, done parts of the bedside exam, and taken the vestibular function test. Now, how do they put it all together to come up with a diagnosis? Making a vestibular differential diagnosis is a very difficult thing to do. And you'll find, you know, of course, depending on the skill and level of the physician and comfort with these patients, um, that your patients may... Uh, not be differentially diagnosed correctly. Um, try to be patient with the physician as there is so many things to consider and these are complicated differential diagnoses. Uh, the example that you know, I give to my students when explaining how complex it is is that you know, think about an idea of a wrist fracture following a uh, foosh type injury. You know, a patient falls on their hand, they complain of pain, you might probably see swelling as well, the physician does an x-ray, boom, they can see that they have a fracture and they know immediately to treat. For the most part, there's not one um, definitive test or um, definitive um, finding that would indicate any one vestibular diagnosis, perhaps with the exception of BPPV, but there still commonly can be other things going on with BPPV to make it much more complex. So that's why, um, you know, the physician does need all these things, and they need to look at not only these objective findings, but also patient subjective reports as well. Very commonly, some psych disorders can mimic vestibular disorders, and the patients may subjectively complain that their symptoms are very, very severe, but they might not you know, show up on objective findings. They may still have some type of a, a disorder. So you need to look at, kind of combine those objective and subjective findings, put it all together, and try and see what it points towards. So once they figure out a differential diagnosis, now they can move into treatment. In general, um, the treatment options for, for managing uh, medical treatment options for patients with vestibular disorders can include modifications to the diet. Of course, those choices are going to be dependent on the disorder. 
certain medications, surgical options, or vestibular rehab. Um, and next we're going to talk about some common disorders, and we're going to talk about for those disorders, um, which of those general medical treatments do they use, and kind of how effective is the medical treatment, and how is that going to affect your um, vestibular rehab. And I think the common theme that you will find is vestibular rehab is indicated for all vestibular disorders and is, for the majority of them, is one of the most effective treatment options as well. The first disorder uh, we'll talk about, actually Sarah will discuss it, is BPPD. So BPV is um, by far one of the most common vestibular disorders and uh, one that patients most often will present um, maybe to a primary care physician um, because of just that sudden onset. They also sometimes will present to the emergency room um, because a lot of times they'll wake up, feel the dizziness associated with BPV, and be very fearful they're having a stroke. So these, can, these patients can present to um, different places. <clears throat> um, oftentimes, they will, depending on where they start, if they start at the emergency room, uh, they will often get a series of tests done to make sure that they are not indeed having a stroke or something central going on. Um, and then at that time should also be put through the hall pike test. Um, unless you're working in acute medicine, you probably would not see a patient at this time. Um, but if they went through the physician route, oftentimes the physician will assess the hall pike um, and see if indeed they do have BPV or not. Some physicians will then, maybe if they have an audiologist in their clinic, have an audiologist do a repositioning maneuver. But oftentimes, they'll ultimately be referred to therapy, so that way we can follow up with the patient, we can do additional maneuvers, and do an assessment on balance, as that can often be affected with BPPV. So um, patients sometimes will present um, with just severe dizziness and nausea, and sometimes they'll be given um, a medication like a meclizine or a Valium, something to suppress their system. Um, we generally try to get them off of those medications once um, we start the treatments um, because those medicines have side effects of their own. They can be addictive. There's all sorts of things that can go on with those very serious medications. Um, but if they are having very severe symptoms, we often will suggest uh, maybe like an anti-nausea medicine or something like that just to help them deal with maybe the nausea of the testing and the repositioning itself. Um, so the doctor would usually see them first, send them on to us. For the most part, the vast majority of BPV patients will be resolved with therapy, usually with very few visits, just doing the appropriate repositioning maneuver. However, it is very important to be aware that there are times where you may need to refer back to the physician um, in the event that you're seeing something that's just not adding up. Um, either you're treating it and it's not being resolved appropriately, not being resolved as quickly as you think it should. Um, if you feel like you're resolving it but it keeps coming back, if it keeps recurring, or if maybe you're working on it and suddenly the eye movements no longer look like PPVV and you're concerned it could be something else. Um, these are times where a referral back to the uh, physician is appropriate to make sure that there's either not an underlying cause that's creating continued BPVV that needs to be addressed medically, or maybe this patient would require a very rare surgery where they do actually plug that canal, um, or perhaps it wasn't BPV at all and it was something else that was missed. Um, 
those are kind of the options. Generally speaking, once you have resolved the BPBV, we always do a balance assessment, make sure the patient has returned to their prior level of function. By and large, they should be off the medications by this time and back to their baseline. Um, we only refer back to the physician if they're having some issue, like I mentioned before, where we think that further medical management is necessary. Okay. Anything else uh, to add? Uh, just a couple of things. Uh, one uh, really troubling trend that I've seen from patients lately um, is that instead of physicians actually going through and performing the maneuver, or sending someone to physical therapy, you know, either to perform the maneuver, that I've seen some physicians uh, tell patients, oh, just go home and YouTube Epley Maneuver and try it yourself. Um, or just give a handout to the patient and say, try it yourself. The reasons why I don't like to have patients try it themselves the first time, of course, number one, they will get symptoms of dizziness, and it can be very unsettling, and it can be, um, you know, of course, very fearful for the patient and, you know, make them dizzy, which is not good. Number two is that if um, most often, as you know, BPPV is going to occur in the posterior canal. If you remember from your anatomy, with the posterior canal is connected to the superior canal. So if you give the patient instructions on doing it themselves and you, you know, don't either include instructions on the chin tuck um, in one of the positions, the patients could have a canal conversion. So I... I um, I think I've had a case of that where the patients tried to do stuff on their own and, you know, they had a canal conversion from posterior canal to superior canal, which is much, much more difficult to both diagnose and treat. Um, but those are the, you know, the two things you want to educate your, you know, physician on. This is why you should either do it yourself or refer to a physical therapist. The other thing, of course, is what Sarah mentioned is that even after the BPPV is resolved, we still want to make sure that we assess their balance. So making sure that, um, you know, the relationship I have with my physicians, even if they treat the patient for BPPV, they usually, especially if they're elderly and at a um, large, higher risk of falling, they refer the patient to me. And then, you know, if I put them back into the positional testing and it's negative, I can go right into testing balanced and higher level vestibular uh, functioning and usually do a couple of sessions just to get the patient um, at a better level to decrease the risk of falling. Anything you want to add to that, Sarah? No, I think you about summed it up. It just, you know, it always makes me think that of these, um, the, especially the elderly patients that have BPV, you think of it as being such a benign, um, simple diagnosis to fix. But for some of these patients, it's really limited and restricted their mobility for often a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes you're dealing with, um, you know, what's called disuse disequilibrium or just an activity restriction that's been a long time coming. Um, so oftentimes these patients, do require further therapy past just the repositioning, which is another argument as to why, you know, maybe they shouldn't just receive a repositioning in the physician's office and be sent home or, yeah. you know, or be instructed to do it on their own. Yeah, yes, would agree with that. Um, the next condition that we're going to talk about is vestibular neuritis and labyrinthitis. Um, I'm going to lump those together because, um, as you probably know, they present very, very, um, very, very similar with the vestibular crisis event which lasts two to three days and then will resolve over time. Typically, because of the sudden onset and the severity of symptoms, um, patients usually go to the ER, but sometimes they will go to um, a doctor's office in that acute phase. And initially, uh, typically the two medications prescribed 
are meclizine or Valium or Antivert, which is a vestibular suppressant, and the patients may also be given steroids. The steroids are given, particularly for labyrinthitis, in order to um, prevent the further loss of hearing. Whatever loss of hearing the patient presents with at diagnosis, that's going to be the loss of hearing that they have, you know, once they get the steroids. The steroids aren't actually going to make the hearing better, but they will present, prevent the loss of hearing from getting any worse. The purpose of the vestibular suppressant medications, meclizine and antivert, is to allow, is to suppress the vestibular system so the patient doesn't feel as dizzy when they are going about their everyday functions. It's basically to form as a bridge for the first couple of days, maybe a week, so that the patient is able to function at their house, you know, get up, walk around, get to the bathroom, um, all those sorts of things. Once they make it through that acute attack, um, the physician may recommend that they go see an ENT or a neurootologist for further workup, and that's when they'll commonly have the vestibular functioning test and the VNG and the ENG. Um, this is a diagnosis. Whenever I have patients that come to see me with these type di two diagnoses, I always tell them that this is a diagnosis that vestibular rehab was made to treat. I mean, this is one of our, our bread and butter, I think. Um, and it's, it's so effective and your patients will, um, you know, love you and you'll get really great results with these two diagnoses. Um, the best treatment option um, to, for vestibular neuritis, for labyrinthitis, is going to be vestibular rehab. And this will help decrease the imbalance and decrease the dizziness that is commonly accompanied by movement of the head, movement of the body, and turns. The big problem medically that you run into with these patients is an over-reliant on the vestibular suppressant medications. A lot of times physicians will, you know, describe it and tell them to take it three times a day, or the patient just gets used to taking it all the time. Um, and the reason that that's bad is that because it's, in addition to the side effects, um, which, you know, are, are drowsiness, it suppresses the vestibular system, so it suppresses the vestibular response. If the patient starts on vestibular adaptation exercises, um, it will interfere with that central compensatory process. So in layperson language, what I always tell the patients is the exercises aren't going to be as effective if you're still on the medication, that your brain kind of won't, you know, learn. The other hazard is that if patients are on these medications, it may mask their symptoms. So if I do an evaluation, you know, of course I'm asking if they're on, you know, the meclizine or the antivert or any other medications. And then if the patient tells me that they're on the meclizine or antivert, that tells me that they've taken it before coming in to see me, I'm always a little bit more cautious with my exercise prescription because I'm assuming that may be suppressing some of the dizziness that they have with the exam and that if they were off the medications, the exercises may be too aggressive. So I make sure that I tell the patients, that once they're off the medications, to call me to see if the exercises are okay, making sure that I'm not overworking them. Um, Sarah, is there anything else that you'd like to add to, the, uh, to that? No, I think you covered that one very well. Okay. Um, and next, Sarah is going to touch on uh, medical management of Meniere's disease. Okay. And Meniere's disease, unlike labyrinthitis or neuritis, is um, much more challenging, especially from a therapy perspective, but also just medical management it's much more difficult um, to get this disease under control. Um, it can present initially in some of the same ways as <clears throat> could maybe be confused with something like labyrinthitis because it can come with 
just this sudden onset of severe vertigo. Um, but there are several differences between uh, Meniere's and the other onsets. Um, Meniere's is often found um, with other symptoms associated with it, such as a fluctuating hearing loss, tinnitus or ringing in the ear, and usually a sense of fullness in the ear. Um, these vertigo and these other symptom attacks usually last for minutes to hours, um, but they aren't like BPVV in terms of seconds, and it's not like neuritis where it lasts for days. So it's usually minutes to hours. Um, without going into great detail, Meniere's is, is a fairly poorly understood diagnosis um, where they think that there's something going on abnormally with the um, indolence, either the volume or the composition or something's not acting right with the indolence actually with inside the uh, vestibular labyrinth. So medically, um, I find that treatment patterns for this vary really, really widely between different physicians or different regions of the country. But what I find is somewhat consistent is that typically um, treatments will progress from the least aggressive or the least destructive to the vestibular system to the most aggressive. And anywhere along that progress where the patient starts having, stops having symptoms, they may be able to stop treatment. <clears throat> so one of the things that we often start with is a low-sodium diet. Um, for some patients, this alone is enough to really manage their symptoms or it's enough to get the attacks down to a manageable level. Uh, we generally recommend like 1,000 to 2,000 milligrams of sodium a day to see if that starts making a difference. Um, if that doesn't work, then the next step is often medications, and these are always handled by generally an ENT or a neurotologist. But they'll often try different medications, maybe a diuretic. Um, there's also another group of medications that's very popular in Europe that some of the doctors are using here. These are some of the histamine antagonist medicines. Um, the one that we use here is called beta-histine. It's also sometimes called CERC. I believe it's called that in Europe. <clears throat> um, you may also find physicians trying migraine medicines, because there's often an overlap between Meniere's disease and migraines. So sometimes you can actually treat um, the migraines and find an impact on the vertigo attacks. Um, if none of those medications are really seeming to get a grip on what is going on, they may try an injection of a steroid, such as dexamethasone, um, something like that, to see if that will stop the attacks. Um, the next step that we usually come to is looking at some of the surgeries like a endolymphatic sac decompression, thinking that maybe you will help drain some of the endolymph, maybe help regulate that fluid volume that could be possibly causing some of these attacks. Um, of course, generally the final step is something that just destroys the vestibular system, and that can be in two ways, either through the injection of um, an ablative medicine, such as gentamicin, which is the one that's most commonly used, or the surgical procedure where they actually go in and do a labyrinthectomy and actually cut the vestibular nerve. Um, so that would be kind of the only way to stop them in years is just to basically deaden that ear. Um, for in terms of physical therapy, these patients are really challenging because their symptoms are fluctuating. Um, they may have several attacks a month, they may have one attack a year, it can all be very variable on the actual patient. So due to those fluctuating symptoms and that fluctuating um, function of the vestibular nerve on the affected side, it's almost impossible to do physical therapy 
while they're in an active Meniere stage. Um, and I'll sometimes get referrals during this time, and I just do a lot of education about, you know, what Meniere's is and the fluctuating symptoms and exactly why it's so difficult to do um, to do therapy on that ear. However, if they've been able to get to a steady state through the medications, through a surgery, at that point in time, they may be very appropriate for vestibular therapy because of the damage the Meniere's has done to one ear. It may have caused a stable unilateral lesion, and at that point in time, they're an excellent candidate for therapy. Certainly following something like a gentamicin or a labyrinthectomy where they did do a vestibular nerve section of some, um, some type, those patients really have to have vestibular therapy because at that point, they've had a sudden vestibular loss, and those patients are the ones who really, really excel with therapy. So it just depends um, for Meniere's patients, and um, especially for new therapists, this can be hard to know exactly where your patient is in this treatment process. Um, because if you try treatment at a time where they're having very unstable, very fluctuating Meniere's, it will become very frustrating. You're not really going to get anywhere with them. So this is something for you to work with um, the physicians on and the patients and kind of learning where they are in their treatment process. Sometimes it takes discharging them for a little bit of time until they can get it under control and having them then uh, try to come back. Yeah. And, Sarah, I don't know about um, your rule of thumb in terms of when patients have Meniere's, the physicians are trying some treatment options. You're not exactly sure if it's stable yet. You know, if, if a patient comes to you, you know, when is a good point to start therapy? And kind of my rule of thumb, I'd say, you know, not based, there's nothing in the literature on this, you know, just sort of based on my practice, is if a patient hasn't had an attack in six weeks, I, you know, that's what I sort of tell them. I want you attack-free for six weeks. Now, I have seen patients as little as three to four weeks, but I prefer at least six. Sarah, I don't know if you have um, any different timeline or yeah, and what I'll, you typically I, do. Again, yeah, I'll often tell patients something like a four- to six-week period without an attack. Um, some patients will just spontaneously have those periods, and all of a sudden the attacks come back, and that can make it tricky. Um, mm -hmm. But if you can at least see them, if they are going at least four to six weeks between attacks, then you can start to get some real work done. Yeah, um, and, and the other go back into attacks, you'd have to probably send them back to the doctor. Yeah, and of course the other thing that you can look at in the phase of Meniere's, you know, I always tell my students, I think a lot of times when you become a very specific vestibular therapist, you get very into the you know vestibular exercises such as situation, adaptation, substitution, and you get the vestibular specific things, but you forget all the other physical therapy interventions sometimes because you have a little tunnel vision. So I tell my students to remember that first you're a physical therapist and then you're a vestibular therapist. So anything that you can do in the acute phase to help the patient be more functional, be it a prescribing equipment, um, balance maybe general neuromuscular exercises to try and decrease their risk of falls, to keep them safe, keep them functional, um, that can definitely be indicated in this period as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the next helpful. The next disorder I'm going to talk about is migraine-associated vertigo, and this is very, very commonly um, can be confused uh, with Meniere's, and very often the differential diagnosis is going to come down to probably one of these two things, Meniere's or migraine-associated vertigo. The reason that it can come down to these two is these two would be considered diagnoses of exclusion, where, again, there's not that one test to really rule it in. It's sort of ruling out everything else and trying to um, 
figure out if it's maybe the migraines causing it. Um, there are some diagnostic criteria that was published in 2012 in the Journal of Vestibular Research, so um, you can see that for more detail. But essentially with migraine-associated vertigo, the thing to try and figure out first, you always want to think about this, if the patient either has a diagnosed migraine disorder or if they um, you know, are presenting with headaches. So anytime a patient kind of gives me a vague thing and I'm thinking maybe migraine and my migraine dizziness in my head, I'm going to ask them follow-up questions about the headaches and see if they have maybe have a migraine disorder. So I'm going to ask them things like, do they have photophobia and phonophobia? Um, and is the headache in one location or is it all around? Is it is it pulsatile? You know, some of those things. Um, sometimes the patients aren't quite sure, so I will encourage them to keep a symptom diary to try to really nail down. The other thing with migraine-associated vertigo that both you and the physicians can do for differential diagnosis is migraines are much more prevalent in female of menstruating age, and there is a hormonal relationship. So I always, and it's a little bit delicate, but I always ask my, especially my female patients, about their menstrual cycle, and I ask if there is any relationship of the symptoms to the menstrual cycle. Um, and the, a case I have had probably about four or five years ago that pops up in my head is that a patient who came to me and, you know, was complaining of dizziness symptoms, and I asked her how often she got them. She said once a month. And immediately that, of course, sort of tips off a little bell. And I said, you know, and I know it's a little personal, but could you tell me if, if this is in any relationship to your menstrual cycle? And she said, well, I didn't think about it, but now that you mention it, I always get the dizziness two days before I start my period. And then, of course, with that strong relationship um, to the menstrual cycle, I was immediately thinking migraine-associated um, dizziness, and she had never been diagnosed with migraine disorder. Um, so what you would do with that is you want to also, if you're suspicious that the patient has migraine but it's never formally been diagnosed, make sure you refer to a neurologist or even better, a headache specialist, to give them the diag to help with the diagnosis of um, migraine. So the main treatments for this are going to be diet. The diet modifications, um, the patients say you want to avoid anything good, um, which is processed foods such as processed cheeses, processed meats, red wine, and chocolate. Um, and you want to avoid heavy salt as well. And, you know, of course, having the patient keep a diary of their symptoms and keep a diary of the food that they eat to see if there's a relationship with that as well. So the two main options for medical interventions are either prophylactic medications um, or what I would call abortive agents. The purpose of prophylactic medications is to prevent the migraines from coming on, and the purpose of the abortive medications is once the migraine starts to stop it dead in its tracks. Prophylactic medications can include beta blockers, such as verapamil, antidepressants, such as nortriptyline or amtriptyline, or any anti-seizure medications, Topamax, Neurotin, um, or Lamictal. The abortive medications are triptans, such as um, Imitrex is a common one that you'll see, but is very expensive, and um, Maxol. And then, of course, um, treatment can be uh, includes vestibular rehab, but typically vestibular rehab is going to be most effective once the migraines are medically managed. And the treatment options include uh, but not limited to, of course, balance training, motion sensitivity, visual vertigo, you know, and typical ocular motor or habituation type exercises. 
Um, Sarah, is there anything else to add to that? Um, these patients, just in general, um, we get a lot of these types of patients, and oftentimes at the beginning they're very hesitant to accept this as a diagnosis, um, especially if they're one of those patients who's only having headaches with their symptoms a portion of the time. Um, so I think that the role of therapy can also be a big um, educational um, thing for these patients. We can really help educate them on about migraine associated vertigo. Um, I definitely have that journal, that 2012 article printed out, so it kind of helps me with the different kind of aspects of it, um, as well as helping them with the diet and things like that, just to be a listening ear for them. Um, the other thing is that um, these patients can be very sensitive to therapy. Um, we can very easily trigger a migraine by doing the, our normal techniques. So I always caution students and new therapists to be just especially cautious with these patients to come on with a very gentle hand. Um, I often just start with some basic balance training or something that's really not going to trigger a whole lot of symptoms to gain their trust and to help them calm down a little bit and see if we can start to show some improvement before I introduce things like maybe um, optokinetic stimulation or ocular motor tasks. So just remembering these patients are often, they can also be very frustrated at the beginning and um, are very sensitive to vestibular stimuli. Of course. And uh, last but not least, we'll have uh, Sarah talk about acoustic neuroma. Okay, so acoustic neuromas, um, also known as vestibular schwannomas, these are those benign tumors that grow around the vestibular nerve. Um, not very common, but when they occur, they are quite serious just because of their location. Um, they often run out of space where they're growing and can push on the facial nerve, um, cochlear nerve, and even possibly onto the brain stem, which is when they get very dangerous. Um, one of the first things about usually people with these, um, with these sorts of tumors will often present to the ENT because they notice they can't hear out of one ear. What I hear a lot of times is people say, I tried talking on the phone on the other ear and I just couldn't hear, hear the phone conversation. Um, so the first thing that they'll get is a hearing test. Um, anytime a hearing test has a big asymmetry between the right and left ear, um, any physician would then order an MRI to make sure there is not a tumor in one of the ears. Um, once they have that confirmed diagnosis, then they'll see generally a neurotologist um, who can then handle the medical management of the tumor. Usually physical therapy is not at all involved at this part. So they kind of have two main options, or three main options. One is just to watch and wait. If the tumor is very small and doesn't look like it's growing, they may just do routine MRIs at a certain interval, maybe six months, a year, something like that, to track the uh, tumor. As long as it's not growing, they may just let it, let it lie there for a while. Um, if the tumor does appear to be growing or if it's approaching another structure such as the brain stem, oftentimes the physician will recommend removal through one way or another. Um, one option, of course, is going in surgically and actually removing the tumor. The other option is radiation. Uh, the surgical removal, there's basically three different techniques the physician will use to go in there and actually remove the tumor. Um, different physicians may have techniques they prefer. They may also use the, uh, decide their technique based on the size and location of the tumor or if there is viable hearing in the ear. So, for example, the translabyrinthine approach um, 
this one will destroy hearing. So it may be the approach they use if the patient has already lost so much hearing in that ear that it's not even worth trying to save. Um, on the other hand, the uh, retrosigmoid approach, that one can preserve hearing as well as the middle fossa approach. Um, if you start to see these a lot, um, as we do here, I've just spoken with our surgeon about which approach he would choose, and it kind of helps guide my treatment following surgery, knowing which actual treatment they had. Um, but those are basically the three surgical um, procedures. The other option is radiation. Um, oftentimes this could be kind of traditional radiation through maybe an oncology program or uh, something like a gamma knife or a cyber knife. The goal of these procedures is obviously not to remove the tumor, but just to at least slow the growth or stop the growth. Um, because you're actually leaving the tumor in there, these patients will need follow-up MRIs um, throughout their lifetime because if for some reason the tumor did decide to regrow, they may then require follow-up surgery. Um, in terms of physical therapy, uh, our biggest role, it would be after the treatment. So through whatever technique they use, whether it's any of the surgical techniques or the radiation, there's going to be some damage to the vestibular nerve. Certainly with the surgical techniques, that vestibular nerve will be cut in the process. So that patient then becomes a stable unilateral lesion. And these guys are another ones that are um, just fabulous vestibular therapy candidates. They generally do very well um, because they have this stable lesion um, that can respond really well to therapy. Um, sometimes I will actually see these patients uh, preoperatively, which can be very helpful. And there has been some research published on prehab for acoustic neuro patients in the sense that you can do a lot of education, you can get them started on the exercises, you can address any symptoms they may be having just from the slow deterioration of the vestibular nerve from the growing tumor, um, and that can be effective. It's not always practical in every setting, but it's certainly an option. Um, but definitely following surgery or following radiation, then therapy is um, generally very needed to help the patient return uh, back to their prior level of function. Anything else you'd like to add? No, I think that uh, you did an excellent job with that. Um, I just want to add in closing, if you want more information about these diagnoses or you want more information about the medical diagnosis and treatment of other vestibular disorders, um, a couple good references for you. The first one would, of course, be um, Susan Herdman's textbook on vestibular rehab, um, but the second reference uh, that is very, very good uh, that most physical therapists and students have is the Goodman and Fuller pathology text. Um, has a very comprehensive